are not aligned with any sect, denomination, politics. <laughs> Let's don't get political. I'll try not to. I'm Otto, and I am an alcoholic. Can you hear me? Cool. And I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, I'm zipped up. Ooh. Oh, part of it wasn't there. I've come up here with it undone before. I have to check. Okay. Greg's a sweetheart. Not real bright, but he's a sweetheart. <laughs> We've had a good time. I've enjoyed everybody this weekend. It's nice to to uh, see some old familiar faces, and it's nice to make some new friends. I'm always pleased to have this opportunity. Uh, my home group's the Legacy Group in Plano, Texas. Plano, Texas is a suburb of North Dallas. So if I were to say I was from Dallas, that wouldn't be telling a lie. <laughs> And I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> I, I happen to be a Dallas Stars fan. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Osgood looked pretty good last night, didn't he? <laughs> uh, so you guys have the same kind of hockey team as we have a football team, you know, America's team. The one that when you go to the game, out of town game, there might be more the visitors' fans there than the home team's fans. I used to hate when Detroit would come to Dallas. <laughs> All you Michigan people would be there and be obnoxious. <laughs> you know, we'd, I'd be back there yelling, Osgood! Osgood! And some Detroit fan would yell out, How's the ring? How's the ring? <laughs> We finally got one, though. So. Anyway, I'll get started in a minute. I don't prepare my talk. I only got one story, but it lasts about four hours, so. <laughs> so in order not to lose you, I have to edit a lot out, and I don't do any editing, so. I said a prayer, and we'll see what happens. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City. I thought that was the big city until I moved to Dallas. Uh, but I lived in Oklahoma City till I was 42, 45, whoa, most of my life. And uh, was pretty naive, pretty innocent. The only time I ever spent out of Oklahoma was uh, my military service. And so I kind of thought that where I lived was how everybody lived. I'm a uh, I tend to be a little selfish and self-absorbed and self-centered, so, you know, my perspective is the perspective, and my experience is the experience, not a experience, one of many. And the way I see things is kind of the way things are. (laughs) uh, You know, I have no idea that there's a multitude of perspectives and that you and I can sit in the same place and look at the same thing and not see the same stuff. I had no idea. And I didn't know that feelings weren't facts. You know, I, I grew up pretty stupid. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a, in a little tiny house, 900 square feet. Uh, my mom, my dad, my older sister, my two younger brothers. Had one bathroom, little bathroom. Touched both walls like this. And uh, it was located right outside the tech second turn of the stock car racetrack. 
And when the cars would go around the second turn, they'd throw mud over the fence and it'd land in my front yard. So you know that this was a prime piece of real estate. <laughs> location, location, location. <laughs> we were poor. My parents were both poor. And uh, neither one of them had a high school diploma. I think my mom made it to about the eighth grade. But they worked hard. They were hardworking people. And they tried to give us everything they didn't have growing up. And uh, I think they made a pretty good effort. Only problem was they, they tended to drink, both my parents. And uh, the older I got, the more chaotic it seemed to be, and the more conflict there was in the house. It seemed like there was a lot of yelling, confusion going on in our house. There was a lot of stress in our house. Um, so I like to get out of the house and go off to school, and I was really good at school. And I'm, I'm the first member of my family lineage to graduate from high school. Okay. Okay. And I was a stud in high school. Okay. I was class president. I was top teen. I was in student council. I was voted friendliest boy. I emceed the pep rallies and headed up to paper drives. I played all the sports. And all the girls wanted me, <laughs> as I saw it. It's <laughs> kind of how I saw it, you know. Again, a little delusional, even as a young man. I was pretty screwed up before I ever took my first drink. Growing up in this home where so much drinking went on. Um, my parents married and divorced each other three times <laughs> before I got out of high school. You know, they couldn't live with each other. They couldn't live without each other. And, you know, my sister, my older sister, she's married and divorced and married and divorced. Married and divorced. <laughs> my two little brothers, married and divorced and married and divorced. Married sisters, divorced them both. <laughs> and sadly, I'm married and divorced and married and divorced. You know, uh, we just didn't learn how to do it growing up. And if you don't recover, we repeat. If I don't recover from what's going on in my life, I'll repeat what's going on in my life. I have to be taught a new way. I can't wish for a new way. I never set about getting married intended to have anything except live happily ever after. But it just didn't turn out that way for me. And, you know, I swore I wouldn't be like my father. He was a police officer on Oklahoma City Police Department. There's one that has all power. That one is Dad. You'd best mind him now. <laughs> if you didn't do what Dad had to say, there was hell to pay. And uh, I can remember uh, hearing my mother scream. I opened up the door to the converted garage that was the third bedroom and, and seeing my dad with her pinning my mother's shoulders to the bed with his knees and hitting her in the face with his fists. And her screaming and the blood on the floor and the bed and the wall. And he pointed me and told me to get back to my room. And I go. We don't say nothing in my house. And we get up the next day and my sister, my brothers and I, we go around, we act like nothing happened. Mom be purple and blue and cut up. And, and you just, I go to school and I'm the friendliest boy at school. Nobody knows what's going on at home because in our house, 
Family business stays at home. Family business is just that. It's family business. And there were a lot of rules in our house. You know, like big boys don't cry. Don't you cry. I'll give you something to cry about. Don't feel bad. If you feel bad, there's something wrong with you. Winners never quit. Quitters never win. Exceptions are made for exceptional people. Practice makes perfect. Where there's a will, there's a way. If anyone can, you can. I tried to live by this. I wanted to please my father. And it just damn near killed me. Because, <laughs> you know, when I would evoke my will, there was more often a conflict than a way. And I practiced and practiced and practiced a bad golf swing, and my scores did not go down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, th- there was just something that wasn't right about the lessons I was learning, but I, it was all I knew, so it's what I did. And I swore I wouldn't be like my dad. And, you know, and I never hit my wife, and I, and I never hit my kids. And so I thought that made me different. Unfortunately, I drank. And when I drank, I drank alcoholically, just like my dad drank. And I didn't know this till I got sober. But I battered my pets. And I'm not proud of that. But I always had big, mean, eat-your-butt dogs. I mean, I had dogs that go through the front door trying to get you, go through the glass, you know, just Doberman pinchers and stuff, you know. I don't know why it is that alcoholics like to have Rottweilers and stuff, you know. We just, oh, pit bull, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dig, yeah. And, uh, you know, they, I was just like my dad. I, I didn't know how to say what I felt. Somebody else was talking about not being able to identify a feeling and I'd have feelings and didn't know what they were, but I knew I wasn't supposed to feel bad, and I'd stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff, and then the dog wouldn't fetch a treat fast enough, and boy, that dog would catch it for me. But I'm not like my dad because I don't hit my wife and kids. And uh, fortunately in recovery, God had to use pets and animals and sports, and he used all kinds of things to help me. Learn the truths about myself. You know, one thing about making a decision to turn your willing life over to the care of God and just jumping in with both feet and being willing to, to know or do anything is you have no idea, or I had no idea, what God was going to do to show me. And uh, animals and sports were two of the areas where he really shook my tree, you know. Speaking of trees, we didn't have a family tree at my house. We had a family thicket. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Christmas is coming up, and Christmas is the holiday from hell at our house. I don't know about yours. Uh, everybody's got extended families. You know, every set of half-brothers and half-sisters have got, you know, eight sets of grandparents, and everybody wants a piece of this kid and that kid on the holiday, and you start like two days before Christmas running from house to house trying to get all the gifts we could get, and and uh, it was just nuts, you know, and Christmas Eve was always held at my mom's, and that would be the one time of the year we'd all get together. My family had completely disintegrated. I mean, it just everybody hated everybody in my family. Nobody could get along. Everybody blamed everybody else for all the, the insanity in my family. And, but we'd get together Christmas Eve at mom's, and that would be the one night a year we'd try to resolve all the family's issues. <laughs> it never worked because we were drinking. And there was a better chance of a squad car showing up than there was a Santa Claus. <laughs> but uh, one of the best gifts I gave myself in recovery was that about eight years sober, I stopped going home for Christmas. <laughs>
And, you know, that was hard. But boy, that's one of the best things I ever did for myself. Stop going home for Christmas. I just knew it hurt my mama's feelings, and it did. She got over it. <laughs> and I didn't have to go home for Christmas anymore. And Christmas is my birthday. My belly button birthday is Christmas Day. <laughs> I've been screwed since day one. <laughs> Merry birthday, happy Christmas. One package. I hated everybody else's birthday. You know, they get all excited on their birthday in June or May or September, you know. Then my birthday ran away, and I, nobody even remember. Would y'all send me a birthday card this year? <laughs> it's on my resentment list. Anyway, uh, I was glad to get out of that house. And I did graduate from high school, and I went off to Oklahoma State University. And I was so excited to be out of that house. And I pledged a fraternity, and my parents were really proud of me. We didn't have any money, but they were doing everything they could to help me go to school, plus I was working. But I joined a fraternity, and damn, I just had a really hard time getting to class. I don't know about how you drank as a young person, but I got drunk and threw up the first time I drank. Me and some other kids got an older boy to buy us some beer, and we went and sat in the field, and we drank that hot beer, and it was awful. But I wasn't about to let anybody else know that it was awful. I was going to drink just like everybody else, and after a while, even though it tastes awful, I just loved the way it made me feel. You know, alcoholics drink for the effect. And it gave me a wonderful effect. Everything became funny. We'd laugh at stuff that, it's like an AA meeting. You laugh at stuff that's not funny, you know. <laughs> and fell down and broke his leg. <laughs> Wrecked mama's car. <laughs> ah! Damn, he almost got run over. <laughs> and I got in trouble the very first time I drank. You know, we decided we'd go talk to some young lady through her bedroom window. <laughs> and her parents didn't like that, and they come running out of the house and we took off you know we didn't want to get caught and uh there was a for sale sign in the yard and i just wham hit that for sale sign and ripped my levi's ripped my leg open you know and uh, i mean the first time i had a problem you know but I, that was that if they had to put that for sale sign there that wouldn't happen i could always justify rationalize minimize explain away i had an excuse for what happened to me when i was drinking it was never the drinking that caused any of my problems because i like to drink and i drink just fine thank you matter of fact i think i'll have a drink you might want to buy me a drink his life's been hard I don't know about you guys, I didn't come in here on a winning streak. Didn't do well in college, because I drank too much, and I couldn't get to class. I didn't get initiated into that fraternity, because they wanted to make me a dry pledge. (laughs) That meant they didn't want me to drink anymore. I would embarrass them when I would drink at their parties. Now, you got to go some (laughs) to embarrass the frat boys. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but back in the 60s when I was going to school, streaking was really big, you know, and for those of you who are younger, streaking means running around naked, okay, 
and they had a song. I forget the guy's name, but they called me the streak. And, and we used to do, I mean, it wasn't like I was the only one doing it. Guys and gals, we'd just run around campus, you know, just naked. They'd line the streets, and we'd just have a sprint down the street, you know, just let it all hang out. And uh, It was great. And every time I would drink, I would end up naked. And it didn't matter, you know, it wasn't when's Otto going to get naked, it's where. You know, because I'd be up in a window or on the roof or driving by in a convertible with the top down or something, you know, just having a great time. Uh, but they didn't think that was appropriate behavior for the mom's day. <laughs> you know? So anyway, they said, Otto, you drink too much and you embarrass us. And so you're a dry pledge and you can drink again when you become a member. And needless to say, I never got initiated into that fraternity. Because nobody's going to tell me I can't drink. That's hazing. They were hazing me. That's what they were doing. It was hazing. I can't stand hazing. Anyway, I didn't do very well. Uh, I had a little less than a two-point average, so I couldn't have got initiated if I'd have stayed sober. You see, I'm not, I'm not real bright. I, I don't read well. I, I learn pretty good by listening. By listening. I got through high school with good grades because I'm, I would listen, and I could pick things up listening. And, but when I had to go to college and get a book out and get the information out of that book, I was in big trouble. Because I'm not a very good reader even to this day. Uh, so anyway, I didn't make very good grades, and when you don't make good grades in college in the 60s, you get drafted. And I was not excited to be drafted. Uh, 1967, Uncle Sam said, come on, Otto, you're not a very good student, and we're going to put you in the Army. And Vietnam was, was just roaring then, and uh, I went through basic training, and they give you, give you all these tests when you're in basic training to see what your MOS might be, what your, your specialty is going to be, so when you go on, you know, you become a radio operator or an electrician or a, a mechanic or, you know, they, they decide what you're going to be, what you're best suited for, and I took the test. I was excited to get the results, and it came back infantry. Infantry. How in the heck do you pick a guy like me for the infantry? You know, damn. I should have been a general's aide. I, I should have been in the NCO club. I should have been a manager. I, I should have been in the motor pool. I like cars. Uh, now they gave me a rifle and sent me to advanced infantry training. And I was in no hurry to go to Vietnam. And I did everything I could do to keep from going and except going AWOL. And I went to... Uh, uh, NCOCS, and I became a Betty Crocker sergeant, one of these, you know, 26-week wonders where now I'm a leader of men, and I thought it'd be much better if I, you know, was to say, you know, take that hill, instead of me being the guy who's being told, you know, take that hill, <laughs> you know, no, no, you go get it, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I went to jump school, and I was a DI for a while, and then I only had a year left to serve, and I... I was hoping they could win that war by then, but they didn't. So I went to Vietnam. I went to Vietnam. That's my weapon. <laughs> went to Vietnam in 1968. 1968 was about as bad a year as you could be in Vietnam. It was the year of the Tet Offensive. Uh, I didn't see anybody come home at the end of their tour. Nobody was finishing up 12 months and coming home. Everybody that left, left wounded or dead. And uh, I wasn't there very long. Uh, and 
You ever heard of anniversary syndrome? Anniversary syndrome is when something spectacular or traumatic happens in your life, and then every year, about that time of year, you remember your mom dying, or you remember something tragic. About this time of year. The monsoons were going on, and uh, we'd gone in on a hot LZ. That's a landing zone, and hot means we know the enemy's there. And we went in with just weapons and water. And, uh, oh, it wasn't a very big landing zone. It was just something they'd blown out of the trees on a top of a, of a mountain. And so there, we couldn't get but one helicopter in at a time. And we had to exit the helicopter on one side because it was a slope. And uh, even with just weapons and water, it was a pretty bad jump. And so there weren't very many of us getting in on the ground. And we were getting in way too slow for the size of the enemy we were going up against. And uh, the ninth helicopter that was coming down on, to drop guys off, out of, the rock, out of the trees come a rocket and knocked that bird down on that LZ. And uh, these guys are burning to death, and you listen to them scream and holler. And, you know, war is. Uh, how many veterans we got in here? How many vets we got? Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Appreciate your service, and welcome home. And uh, for those of you who have family members, you know, I have a son-in-law that's been to Iraq twice now. So, uh, For those of you that have family members who serve, you know, we appreciate your sacrifice too. But war is, there's nothing that could prepare me for war. That day we were pinned down, we were badly outnumbered and uh, surrounded and the fire's burning and the CO radio's down. He says, we're going to drop some firefighting equipment into you and we're going to drop some plastic explosives into you. We'd like for you to knock down some trees, try to create a little larger landing area and put out some of those fires so we can get some more people in there. You guys are going to need help. (laughs) And uh, so he come hovering over the LZ himself in the command helicopter, and here come another rocket. (laughs) Popped that helicopter, and it just wavered in the sky, and one guy fell out, and it just fell right down on the fire with the other one. And a kid named Henderson jumped up and ran out to help these guys and I'm no hero but he was my only visual contact and I didn't like being there alone so (laughs) I went with him and we went out on that LZ and got these guys out of that helicopter and uh, they were asking about the one that was blown out of the door and I saw him go but he went into the jungle and so me and Henderson went to look for him during this fight and when we got to him he was a mess he was still alive, but he was just a mess. And uh, you know, his legs were blown off. His face was destroyed. His arms were mangled. And yet he was still alive. He'd fallen all that way. He was still alive, and he's gurgling, and he's crying, and he's making noises. And, and we used our boot laces to put tourniquets on his legs and... We put pressure all over him, trying to stop as much bleeding as we could without suffocating him. And we wanted to muffle his cries because we didn't want him to draw fire. And the medic finally came and took over, and I never, I never knew that kid. He wasn't anybody, wasn't anybody I knew. But I, when I lay down to go to sleep at night, I see him just damn near every night. 
and I have a sleep disorder. I think I have a sleep disorder. I can't sleep well. I don't know about anybody new or nearly new doing that 30 days and a thousand nights thing. <laughs> you know, a thousand nights is a really long time when you can't sleep like I can't sleep. Because when I lay down to go to sleep, I see my dad on my mama's chest. I see that guy blown to pieces in Vietnam. He wasn't the only one. I see my brother twisting on a t-shirt that he hung himself with in prison. And one of my wives, uh, uh, <laughs> won't have sex with me. That's how, they, that's how they punish me. Withhold your sexual favor. You're all on my resentment list, every one of you. <laughs> so I just can't sleep at night. Y'all don't understand. That's my pat answer for anybody who ever tried to help me, was you don't understand. You know, if your life was my life, if you'd live my life, then you'd have a drink too. And most of the medication I take is prescribed. <laughs> most of it. <laughs> See, the next day in that same fight, I walked up on an enemy position and I was shot twice. And uh, one round went through my left hip and one round went through my left ankle. And uh, have you ever heard the expression, we're going to blow your ass off? That round went in here, came out right next to my sphincter, <laughs> and the glute just went with it. So I carry my billfold over here, so it, it looks like there's somebody home, because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> there ain't nothing going on over there. I mean, they dusted me off, sent me to a hospital in Yokota, Japan. I was there seven weeks. Sent me to a hospital in California. I was there a couple of weeks. They sent me to a hospital in Texas. I was there for a couple of weeks. Then they finally sent me to Reynolds Army Hospital, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, so I could be close to my family. <laughs> Get all that support. You know. <laughs> Don't you cry. Spent the first nine months in the body cast or a spica. If I wasn't in traction, I was in a spica. That's where your whole body's in plaster. So I couldn't move anything but my arms. And they couldn't get my hip. It just blew the ball off the pelvis, or off the femur, and shattered the pelvis. And they put all these big screws into my ankle to try to fuse my ankle and my foot and everything solid. And they were trying to do the same thing with my hip, but it wouldn't heal. And I had a gross staph infection. And they had windows in this cast, and they would open it up, and they'd stuff the gauze down in me, almost to my knee, all the way down, trying to get these infected areas to heal. And it wouldn't heal. And when I turned 21, I'd been in the hospital four months. And when I turned 22, I was still laying there, trying to get that stuff to heal. It wouldn't heal. And it was painful. Very painful. And when you got this big cast on, they can't give you injections anywhere but your arms. You know, and after a year or so of injections, your veins get tired and they collapse. And they'd stick a needle in my arm and you could hear it go in. It sounded like it was going in balsa wood. And I'd just, I'd just weep because they'd inject that morphine or that Demerol and it would just run back out around the needle and down my arm because it was so scarred. And I really believe I know what it's like to be tortured. That, that hospital experience was, was one of the most horrible experiences of my life and they weren't anything but kind to me. But I was just that injured, just that severely injured. I had, uh, had an open draining wound in my buttocks for seven years. 
seven years, I would wear big gauze bandages over here, which helped kind of create the butt effect. Uh, but just to keep the pus off my clothes. And it was very, very painful because it never did fuse. Uh, they tried to get it to fuse, but what I ended up with was called a fibrous union, which means the soft tissue was holding it together, but the bone wasn't. And so the bone just worked on each other. I had about five degrees motion, and it was just bone on bone motion. And bone pain is ugly pain, and you don't understand. You do not understand. Don't begrudge me my drink. And these pills I take are prescribed. I like to carry them in this little 501 blue jean pocket right here. What you got there, Otto? Tic Tac. <laughs> Can I have one? Oh, all gone. <laughs> Married my high school sweetheart while I was in the hospital. They were telling me I wasn't going to walk. I didn't want her to get away. I didn't figure anybody would want me when I couldn't walk. So against her parents' uh, better thinking, she drove down to the hospital with a couple of my friends one day and chaplain came in and married us while I lay there in that cast and I knew also I knew I'd make more money as a married man laying there than as a single man <laughs> I always had motives got good motives you know I got ulterior motives I don't know about you guys I was always planning and scheming and conning something it was going to work out good for me whatever it was and uh, but they gave me an overnight pass and my best two best buddies they came down and they had a uh I don't know if it was a pickup truck or a station wagon, but they'd put a mattress in the back of it, and they gurneyed me down, and the, my buddies, they'd put a, took a pair of cutoffs and slid them up the side, and they put them on me like a diaper, and then used eyelets, and they laced them up the side like a shoelaces on each side, so it looked like I had cutoffs on, and then I'd put a, a big sweater on over that, sweatshirt, and they'd just, you know, take this plastic, plastered man, and, and away we go. And uh, I went into taverns like that. <laughs> they just leaned me up against the wall, you know. <laughs> and we'd just drink, drink, drink. Then I, it was time to go to the bathroom. They'd just all stand up, and I'd pee in the cup and hope it was the right one. And, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's weird. Anyway, but they let me go uh, for my honeymoon night to the Holiday Inn. So it was me and my new bride and my two best friends and, and my bedpan and my urinal. <laughs> and... Uh, then the next day they took me back to the hospital and she went home and I stayed there a long time. Yeah. And I don't know what it was. She was a wonderful girl, but like I say, I, if you don't recover, you repeat. And I, I wanted to be a good husband. I always wanted to be a good son, but I just don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. And I have no idea that drinking's a problem for me. I have no idea that, you know, medication is a problem for me. Uh, I've been to marriage counselors. I've been to pain management specialists, I've been to biofeedback therapy, I've been to all kinds of camp, post-traumatic stress disorder therapy, and, you know, somebody please help me, because, you know, I'm not making much of a go of my life, and, and uh, I like me, I really, I really do, I like me, and I'm trying to be a good person, I've always thought of myself as a good person, I've got a lot of citations and awards and stuff that say I'm a good person, you know, and, uh, but I just loathed me, because I couldn't get that perfection you know couldn't I just couldn't I'd get I'd get what I set out to get and then I'd be dissatisfied with it uh, so it was very frustrating and then you know the marriage one marriage goes south another marriage goes south and, and uh, I just felt like I was a victim never did I see myself as the perpetrator never did I see alcohol or drugs as a problem 
You know, alcohol and drugs are what I use to cope with my problems. And I got problems. I got legal problems. I got financial problems. I got social problems. I got marital problems. I got parental problems. I got problems coming out my wazoo. You should take some of my problems from me. Won't you give me a million dollars? Everything will be fine. And, you know, I, it was just this sad song that I would sit on the bar stools and play. Because I was a tavern drinker. I, I liked the little gal that liked the little guy at the tavern. <laughs> and uh, I'd sit there and I'd tell that sad story and people would buy me drinks. You know, oh, you poor baby, you're a veteran. Nobody even welcomed you home. Spit in your face. Yeah, oh, well, let me buy you a drink. Thank you. I still don't get a little bottle, you notice? <laughs> I don't like to drink out of the little bottles. You know I'm alcoholic because I'm the kind of alcoholic that has to have a drink to get ready to go out to drink. You ever go out to drink sober? <laughs> and I'm glad that I got sober before they started this take their keys away from them thing. Because there'd have been some serious fisticuffs <laughs> where I was at if somebody tried to get my keys. Because everybody else would be ready for bed and I'm just getting wound up. And, uh, you know, I have to drink myself to sleep every night. Because if I lay down and just try to go to sleep, then I have all these nightmares. See, I've got this sleep disorder. You know, and I have to deal with this sleep disorder. So, uh, drink, 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 drink. Drank myself through two marriages and two careers Finally wound up uh, unemployed and unemployable, divorced, estranged from my wife, estranged from my kid, didn't go out anymore, stayed home and drank. Used to like to go out and dance, get rowdy. I might be all crippled up, but you get me drunk. Get me liquored up, and I'm a dancing fool. And I know you all want me. <laughs> I remember towards the end of my drinking career, I liked the car races. You know, I grew up across the street from the racetrack, and cars racing was my thing. I'd do anything to go to the race. I'd drive 100 miles with forecast of rain, just so, uh, you know, maybe they'd run a few laps. You know, I just loved the races. It was my great escape. Uh, I was fanatical about the races. And I went to Florida, and this was just before I got sober. And I didn't have anybody to go with. I'd used up all my friends, even my drinking buddies. Didn't have any, anybody that liked to be around me anymore. I was just pathetic. Uh, one that I was a nasty drunk. My dad's a nasty drunk. My dad's a violent drunk. I'm just a pathetic drunk. Pathetic. You know, puking drunk. Just, <laughs> just drunk. Ugh. So anyway, I went by myself to Florida for Daytona Speed Weeks. And uh, Daytona Speed Weeks, there's lots of racing that goes on. They race all over Florida uh, for several weeks there leading up to the Daytona 500. And I met these good old boys. You know, they were carrying a big old cooler up into the stands. They're my kind of boys. And, and I hook up with them, and we start traveling around Florida going to the races. And uh, We went to the uh, Tampa State Fairgrounds. Nope, we went to the Tampa Fairgrounds for, nope. We were in Tampa, and the state fair was going on. <laughs> anyway, they were having a race program there. They were running uh, late model stocks on a mile dirt. And so we were, at, we were in our element, man. We were having a great time. We are watching these guys go in circles on the dirt and drinking that cold beer. And 
eating my pills. And then uh, the races are over, and we leave, and we go and we walk around the fair because the fair's going on, and the carnies were all there, and, and the rides, and lots of pretty girls. You know, we like to walk around and look at the girls and eat corn dogs and uh, drink beer. And, and we left there, and we went to a nightclub. And now I'm in my element because I, I drink beer. Don't get me wrong. I'll drink beer, but I like to drink whiskey. I like to drink wild turkey liquor. And I like to drink bourbon. You know, I just, and I, I like to drink it where there's a whole lot of bourbon and a little bit of Coke. Bourbon Cubra Libre or something. I don't know what that is. But anyway, I didn't like to go in these places and drink well drinks. So I always carried a flask because they don't mix them right in these places. And they charge way too much money for them, you know. I even had a cane that you could twist the top off, and it had tubes in it, and, and yeah, they were glass. And I dropped one and broke one at a concert one time. That <laughs> bourbon just welled up. Uh, but anyway, this, uh, this night I got particularly drunk. We were in, this club was called The Pit because it had a big hole in the ground. And you'd go down in that hole and you'd dance. Now I'm a dancing fool, so... I've been drinking 10, 12, maybe 14 hours this day. You know, it's early in the morning, and we went to the races for noon, I know. And I started to get queasy, and I staggered out of that club. And now, I don't know if any of y'all ever did this, but if there's any of you among you that are, you know, kind of wondering about me, am I or am I not, and you've done this, you might stop fighting it. Because <laughs> I'm running out there holding on to cars so that I don't fall down. It's cold and I'm sweating. That stuff just comes blowing out of my face, you know. It's on the cars, it's on my pants. It's on my boots. It's stuck up my nose. Oh, God. I got little pieces of corn dog stuck in my nose. Oh, I am so sick. Go back in the club. Get another drink. I got to wash that taste out of my mouth. <laughs> Tell that little gal I'm moving on. The one with the big sore on her lip right here. <laughs> You're not going to believe this, but I got sick. <laughs> I'm telling you, I will never, ever, ever again as long as I live, ever. Eat another state fair corn dog. <laughs> that greasy damn thing made me sick. And that was my truth. You know, uh, people talk about denial. I had no clue that I was an alcoholic. I am not one who ever tried to stop and, and found that he couldn't. You know, I never was one who thought that drinking was a problem and tried to quit. You know, what our big book talks about is delusion. And that was my truth. Two and two is four. That's up. That's down. And that greasy corn dog made me sick. Because I drink just fine. Thank you. 
I like to drink. I can drink a lot. I think I'll have a drink. Drinking is not a problem for me. I had no clue. I, I don't know what it's like to try to quit and relapse. And try to quit and relapse. I, I, I mean, I, all I can have is, is compassion for you. I, have, I don't have any empathy because I haven't done that. I, I can't imagine it being anything but horrible to try to quit and not be able to. Uh, I wasn't about to quit. <laughs> I mean, because this hip hurts. You know, I'm not making that up. That's real. These nightmares are real. I like to drink. You know, I need some help getting to sleep. I have to drink myself to sleep at night. So, anyway, I wound up in a VA hospital or at the VA hospital, and then I went through their day hospital psych ward thing where they, you know, they just kept me there during the day and they let me go home at night. <laughs> so I could drink myself to sleep. They didn't know I was doing that. I don't know if you were like me or not, but I never told the doctor the truth. You know, I was, I was, a, I was a dock worker, and it doesn't have anything to do with boats. Isn't this the only port on Lake Erie or something like that in Monroe, a port city? Yeah. yeah. I was a dock worker. <laughs> and uh, Dr. A didn't know what Dr. B was giving me, and Dr. B didn't know what Dr. C was giving me, but I could go into Dr. D and drop my pants. And they'd go, oh, shit, that hurts. Yeah, what do you need? Ugh. That is some nasty, that, ooh, ooh. I had all the drugs I wanted. And, uh, but I took this battery of tests while I was in there. The testing always gets me. I don't know what it is. You know, my life gets changed by tests. And I take this battery of tests, and I go back to get the results, and the psychiatrist says, Otto, you're angry. You're a genius. <laughs> well, you're a genius. I could have told you that without the test. <laughs> I got a lot to be angry about, you know? Wow, he says, and you have a drinking problem. You drink too much and you drug too much. And I did not believe him for a minute. I could not comprehend my life without drugs and alcohol. What would I do with this pain? What would I do with my thoughts? What would I do if I didn't drink or drug? My gosh, I can't imagine what life would be like without it. You know, I mean, it's, it's not that I, I'm an alcoholic or a drunk or anything. It's just that I, this is like air to me. You know, I need this to get, get along. And he says, well, uh, I'm not going to work with you anymore unless you go to treatment. And I just got indignant. I don't know if you ever get indignant, but I just got indignant. Well, you can't do that. I'm a disabled veteran, and you have to care for me. You know, they don't. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> they can say that you don't cooperate and say, see it. And uh, so he, I, I, there was a lot of advertising on TV back then about Valium being overprescribed. And a lot of people were getting addicted to Valium, which happened to be one of the many drugs I was taking. And I don't know about you, but I'm always out of Valium. <laughs> you know? One of the things they got me with in treatment was they said, Otto, people that don't have a drug problem don't count their pills. Mm, got me right there, right out of the chute, first one, you know. Damn. Mm. I always knew how many pills I had, whether it was 300 or 3. You know, I knew because I wasn't about to run out. And uh, I was having some problems because I was always out of Valium. It's, it's not as easy to get as something. Man, when I'm out of Valium... I can't swallow water when I'm out of Valium, you know. It's like, you know, I'm just, just a little bit crazy. When it's just really uncomfortable to run out of Valium. 
So I agreed to go to treatment to get a medical detox off of Valium and to get on something else. <laughs> That's the only reason I was willing to go to treatment. To get some relief from getting off this addictive Valium and get on another drug. I've been taking, psychiatrists been writing me prescriptions for drugs my whole life, you know, and I'd take this pill and come back and wake and say, no, it makes my hair stand up, it makes me itch, you know, I can't wake up when I take that one. They just kept changing the medications until I got blissful. <laughs> yeah, I'm blissful, everything's good, yeah, this is good, doc, this is good. Then I'd run out and take as prescribed was the problem. I don't know why they put that on those bottles, take as prescribed, yeah. And you people that could do that, drive me crazy <laughs> and I was so happy for you though you know when I would meet somebody I'd go to their home or it was a gal or a family or somebody I'd meet I'd always ask for a toothpick well sure let me get you I said no just tell me where they are well they're in the cabinet and I'd rifle through those cabinets and I'd find old prescription bottles you know with Darvacet or something and it didn't matter what it was and you know there'd be a prescription for 30 and there'd be 28 of them in there and the prescriptions Nine months old. I'm going, <laughs> they obviously don't need them. <laughs> you know, man, take two pills in nine months. Yeah. Anyway, that's what got me into treatment. In treatment, wonderful things happened to me. Treatment, uh, you guys came in. You know, I got that medical detox I needed, and... Uh, you guys came up there, and they were educating us in these classes that they would have every day, and I'm learning that alcoholism's a disease, you know, that I'm a sick person, I'm not a bad person. And uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, picking it up. I'm not just hot on the trap to get this, you know. I did think it was interesting. Uh, but the more you guys came up and did what I'm doing tonight, you came up and you told your stories, well, the more I identified. And that's the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous, is, you know, that that's why one alcoholic can help somebody, another alcoholic who others have been trying to help for a long time and can't get help. One alcoholic can help that person. And you guys would come in and tell your stories and I would just be blown away because you guys are talking about stuff that I wouldn't talk about. <laughs> I don't believe I'd have said that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got to think it's kind of like somebody had told a joke. And you don't get it, you know, and you're just kind of, ha, 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 you don't really get it, but you're just kind of laughing along. You say, you know, I'm going along because I want to get out of this hospital, you know. I'm going along, yeah, I'm auto alcoholic. And, uh, uh, but one day a, a black man came in, and he was old, and he was horribly disfigured, and his life was unmanageable, and he had tried to kill himself with asphyxiation. He turned on the gas stove in his home. And his life's unmanageable, and he's like me. His best plans don't work. His best thinking sucks. And the house blew up, and it just burned him all up. His fingers were burned off, and his black skin was white, you know. And, but this dude was happy. And he's in there talking about being an alcoholic and laughing and having fun, you know. And he took away that last obstacle that stood between me and accepting that maybe I was an alcoholic, and that was the, my disability. You know, you don't understand. This pain is real. And I, I could see this guy had been through a lot of pain. And he was happy and he was doing it. And, and for me, it was like all of a sudden I got the joke. Son of a gun. Who'd have thought it? 
a sharp guy like me, I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Holy cow. I drink just like that. It's like they've been watching me. Damn, I'm an alcoholic. And for me, it was good news. I've been trying to figure out what's wrong for a long time. I've changed hobbies, houses, careers, music, hairstyles, dance, clothes, wives. You know, what, do I, what, what else can I change to try to get wrestle some kind of happiness out of my life? And it just wasn't working. And so this all of a sudden, it just made sense. And for me, it was good news. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And it's a treatable disease. Yeah, there's hope. You guys gave me hope. That maybe I could get out of this despairing sludge pot I was in, you know. And uh, I was excited. And then, Mom, Dad, we're all alcoholics. <laughs> they weren't as excited about it as I was. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, I, I, was, I was on board. And uh, I was in a hospital, it was St. Anthony's Hospital, and a care unit. It was a care unit. And, they had these steps on the wall here, and they said, well, here's your program of recovery. And I'm an overachiever and a perfectionist, okay? I thought those were attributes. <laughs> when I checked into that hospital, I was going in there, and they said, Otto, isn't there anything good you can say about yourself? I'm an overachiever and a perfectionist. <laughs> I thought those were attributes. <laughs> They were about to kill me. Anyway, they said, we got a program of recovery for you. You know, we want you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. We want you to get, a, get our book and read it. It's a text. It's about how to live sober. We want you to get you a sponsor, one of the guys that's been coming up here to the hospital, and, and he'll be your mentor, kind of your guide through your early days of sobriety. You're going to have a lot of questions. You're not going to know exactly what to do when you start trying to do things without a drink. And, and uh, we'd like for you to... Uh, uh, take these 12 steps and uh, don't drink one day at a time. Oh, and pray. That was the other thing he wanted me to do. Pray. Now, I'm not keen on prayer. You know, I'm not, I look at these steps. We admit we're probably Yeah. God. Look at that. God, 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 God damn. <laughs> It's a God deal. I was furious. I can't believe it. I've been duped. I've been hoodwinked. It's just like in our book, you know, you tell them about the malady and then you tell them about the solution, the spiritual solution. I was furious. I want nothing to do with God. You know, when I was a young boy, we went to church and we went to Sunday school and we'd sing, Jesus loves the little children. And we'd go home and get our ass beat. <laughs> my little brother, it was so chaotic and stressful in, in our home that my little brother, but by the age of 10, had to go into a children's convalescent hospital for colitis. Ulcers of the intestines, very rare in a child. You know, that's an old people's disease. And they had to remove most of his rectum, and they had to take out a lot of his intestines, and he had to use a colostomy and crap in a bag on his side. And it's kind of hard to go to high school following your stud big brother you know when you're shitting yourself and and you can't feel bad and you can't cry and we went out there and we'd visit him and they had 
thalidomide babies and cancer kids and burn kids. You know, just, Jesus loves the little children. I don't know. One Sunday we went to church and the pastor didn't show up. I really liked our pastor. But he had died the night before in a plane crash. And I thought, what? Here's God's right-hand man. What good did, did God do him? I mean, you know, he had the red phone, man. And he's gone. Wow. And I just had a lot of unanswered questions. And the reason the questions were all unanswered is because I wouldn't ask the questions. But this is all going on in my head. And the day I was shot, I walked up on that enemy position. I was lost. I'd gotten separated from my guys and I was lost. And I walked up on this enemy position. I don't think they wanted to shoot me, but I was going to fall in their hole if they didn't. And so they just, a short burst of machine gun fire rang out and cut me in two and I went to the ground. And my first thought was I've been shot. It takes a moment to realize what's happened. I mean, it just, it happened and you're down and, and, and I had to realize I've been shot. And my second thought was God help me. And my third thought was there is no God. Just like that. Bing, bing, bing. One, two, three. September 22nd, 1968, I stopped wondering about God. I stopped looking for God. If there's a God, he must be a damn terrorist. You know, where's he been? Where's he at? Where was he when my dad was on my mama's chest? Where was he when my brother was hanging himself in that cell? Where is he when all my buddies are getting blown to pieces? And uh, I don't believe. And I thought that maybe I'd get out of treatment because I don't believe. And they said, you know, you're going to stay and go all the way or your insurance won't pay. And you'll have to pay, and I ain't paying for this. <laughs> I ain't paying for this. Not like I had somewhere else to go. But I stayed for all the wrong reasons. Now, you know, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and still get wonderful results. And in the beginnings of my recovery, I did a lot of stuff for the wrong reason. How long have I been talking? How long have I been talking? Holy smokes. 55 minutes, okay. Must be having fun. <laughs> okay, we're going to get to the good stuff. Okay, I got sober. <laughs> you know what we identify with? I'm not really not here to talk to the old timers. I'm here hoping that there's somebody fairly new that might identify with some of my experience and it'll help them to better understand their own alcoholism. And recovery is something that if you've been here for a while, we've all come to know and and enjoy that, or most of us have. If you haven't, if you've been sober a while and you're not enjoying it, and I know there's some of that out there, uh, it's usually because of a defective relationship. That's what it says in our eighth step. Defective relationships are the cause of most of all our problems. And uh, I started going to Al-Anon when I was eight months sober, and I still go to one Al-Anon meeting a week, and I've been doing that for 22 years. And so I got sober, and I got happy in Al-Anon. And if, because, you see, when I got out of treatment, I still had my dad, same dad, same mom, same brothers, same sister, same ex-wives, same girlfriends, same financial problems, same legal problems. Although my problems were the same. The only thing that was different was I wasn't drinking. And I had the same disability and the same chronic pain. Only now I'm not taking anything but ibuprofen. Ugh. I was so disappointed when I found out that ibuprofen works. God. <laughs> That, you know, I just knew that stuff wouldn't work for me, you know. And it works. I just hated it. Well, it worked if I didn't abuse myself. You know, I had to learn to moderate and stop being, you know, 
36 rounds of go- 36 holes of golf in a round and mowing my own yard and stuff. You know, I had to quit doing that. I had to start living like a disabled person instead of a challenged person. You know, I was a challenged person. Yeah, I'm challenged. <laughs> anyway, I was disappointed in this guy deal, but one of the guys coming up and doing service work there, coming up and talking to patients, was a guy named Mike. And he hadn't been sober a long time. You don't have to be sober a long time to carry the message. And he was listening to me, and, and, and I, you know, I told him about the third step there and that I just can't believe in God. And, and, and he says, why? And I started to tell him my stories. And, and he says, well, I, he says, uh, on that third step, it's as we understood him. He says, you don't have to believe in the God you gave up on in Vietnam. And what a magnificent statement that was. You don't have to believe in the God you gave up on. And he asked me, what would God have to be for you to take a chance and try, not saying that you can do it, try and turn your will and your life over to his care, you keep control. I like that. I keep control and he can care for me. You know, if Warren Buffett were to walk in here and go, Otto, I care about you, I'm going to get excited. <laughs> Warren's got some jack, <laughs> okay? If Jimmy Buffett walks in here, I'm going to get excited if he cares about me, okay? So, I, you know, I, I thought this was kind of bogus, but I, it was a way for me to get out of that corner I'd painted myself into, and I really did believe I was alcoholic, and I really was desperate for help. And uh, so I did simple writing, and I came up with a real simple concept of God as I understood him, and that was that he would be omnipotent, all-powerful, and with all his power, all he wanted was for me to get sober, and here's the hook, like it. I have to like it. If I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. And I thought, you know, I showed that to Mike the next time he came to the hospital, and I fully expected him to say, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood, come on, pick a team. What are you going to be, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, come on, pick a team. Killing each other all over the world. Come on, pick a team. Don't pick a loser. And that's not what he said. What he said was, okay, that's your God. You pray to that God. God that's omnipotent. All he wants with all, all God's power is about you, Otto. <laughs> and uh, he's going to keep you sober and have you like it. I didn't think for a minute this would work. Not one moment. But I'm always a planner and a schemer. So my plan was, and this is, this is, this is the truth. I'm going to die. You know, some people are making moccasins and stuff when we go to the therapy. I'm making calendars and things. And I'm keeping records of my meetings, my calls to my sponsor, the guys that I was functionally illiterate when I got out of treatment. So the guys that I was in treatment with would come to my house every day. And we would read the big book out loud. Because I wanted to be able to document and have witnesses to that I was doing everything you said. And you all know I pray. Because we're holding hands at the end of each meeting. So I'm praying. I'm reading the book. I'm calling my sponsor. I'm going to meetings. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it all. And when I get drunk, I'm going to have all this documentation that I did everything you in this churchy hospital said to do. And I'm going to sue your butt. I am going to own Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? Because I do not believe this will work. But in spite of my best thinking... You know, I didn't drink for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 days. You know, and then there came a day when I didn't think about drinking. <gasps> oh, my gosh, how did that happen? You know, and I started to enjoy you folks. And we'd hang out and we'd have the meeting after the meeting. And, and uh, I just really began to enjoy being sober. 
It was the darnest thing I ever saw. And I did steps one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Because it was working for me. You know, I, was, I made this decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And then I literally would just go through my day <laughs> watching to see what he might be up to. And, uh, you know, my sponsor told me, he says, I don't know, all you have to do is be willing to see. You know, and insane things began to happen. Just insane things would happen. Uh, I'm on a bowling team. Greg and I were talking about bowling. I'm a heck of a bowler. I might be crippled, but I can throw that bowling ball. But you know what? Sometimes I throw that ball, and I mean, I just bury it up to here. You ever throw one? You just bury it up to here, right in the pocket, and crash the all and that damn ten pin will just stand there. Man. Then I get back, you know, another time I'll throw one and oops, miss my mark. Oh, shoot. And it goes in a little lighter, a little heavy, and they all domino around and it strikes. And I started to get the hang of it. I'm powerless. You know, I'm not making this stuff happen. I can bury it up in there perfect and not get a strike, and then I can throw a piece of crap down there and get a strike. And all of a sudden, it made sense to me. You know, those little things like that, I started to learn. You know, I had this little dog. And I wanted to teach her to catch a Frisbee. And so I'd throw the Frisbee, and she can't catch it, but I'm not a very good thrower either. If I throw it right in her mouth, she'll get it. <laughs> but she's fetching. She's not catching. But we're working on it. She's just a little dog. And uh, they told me all I had to do was, if I wanted to change my life, if I wanted to stay sober and like it, all I had to do was change everything in my life. If you haven't done it, try it. And if you've been doing it, stop. <laughs> and so I always had big, mean dogs. Well, I got a little dog. Got a little dog. And so I'm trying to teach her to catch this frisbee, and the wind blows a lot in Oklahoma, and it goes up on the roof of this little house I'm renting. And uh, my best thinking's not real good early in sobriety. <laughs> and I don't have a ladder, but my brain says, if you'll put Speeder up there, she'll go get it. <laughs> Made sense to me. Picked her up. Put it. It's a low roof. Not totally insane, although well, I don't know what I'm thinking. She's going to come to the edge and jump off right. So I put her front paws on the roof and I pushed her up. And I said, go get it, girl, go get it. And she didn't go get it. She just got scared. And when she got scared, she peed. <laughs> and it just come down all in my head, my hair, and all over my face. It just went all over me. And I put her down on the ground and started to laugh at myself. I couldn't believe I was going to do something so stupid. I ran in and I called my sponsor. Johnny, Johnny, you will not believe what God just did. I was going to do something stupid. I was going to put the dog on the roof and he made her pee on my head so that I wouldn't do it. And I can imagine what he's thinking on the other side. He says, I don't, I don't know if God did that or not, but I imagine he could. And I think you should go to a meeting and tell everyone. And man, I'm, I'm off to tell them, you know. Because God is working in my life, okay? And I'm at a meeting where I don't usually go, and they didn't call me. Well, big mistake. And so it got to be burning desire time, you know, and I just want to tell this story. And so I'm sharing that story with them, and I heard myself say something I didn't know I was going to say. I heard myself say, and I put the dog down on the ground and began to laugh at her. And my old behavior would have been to kill that damn dog. And that rolled over me like a tidal wave. See, that was not the figure of speech. I'd had that little dog down choking her the day before, hitting her with my fist. 
neighbor lady came to the end of the driveway and told me to leave that little dog alone. I told her to mind her own business. And that day I was changed. And I was willing to see. I didn't see that God had not just taken that from me, but he showed me a truth about myself that I needed to know. And it was the beginning of me understanding my father. It was the beginning of my willingness to forgive my father. My father was a nasty, violent, vulgar man. He was barred from all the taverns in Oklahoma City by the end of his drinking career. He had to go out in the country to drink. And uh, it took five years from the time I became willing to forgive my father until I did. I was at a Brahms ice cream store, and this summer I'd been to a hospital meeting, and I'm... uh, Eating an ice cream cone, sitting out there, and the car pulls up, and the guy jumps out, runs in, comes out with two cones, and can't get in the car. The car's locked. And I'm sitting there eating my ice cream. <laughs> and this guy's trying to tell his dad, this little old man in the car, Dad, you know, how to unlock the electric car door. And Dad's a little old man, you know, and he don't know the car door from... Airplane, you know, I mean, he don't know electric switch or nothing. He's just, just this little lost little man in the car. And uh, the guy's just real patient and tolerant and kind and gentle and understanding. And pretty soon, pop, the door opened up. And the guy went and threw the two ice creams in the trash, washed his hands, got two new ice cream cones, came out, got in the car, and he and Dad took off. And I sat there and cried like a baby. Because, you know, you all had been telling, them, telling me that my dad did the best he could. And I didn't think that was a very damn good answer. But the truth of the matter is that my dad did do the best he could. Just like that little old man was doing the best he could. And he didn't know how to unlock that door. And the only thing that was wrong in my relationship with my father was that I didn't have the tolerance and the patience and the understanding and the kindness and the forgiveness and the gentleness to have a relationship with somebody who wasn't very well. And I called my sponsor, and I said, Johnny, I have forgiven my father. And I'm crying. I've forgiven my father. And he says, well, you can go love your father. And I did. I'd, be bring, I'd take a meeting to the prison every Tuesday night. In my first five years of sobriety, I took a meeting to the prison. I still sponsor a kid that's been in that prison all these years. He's coming out in two, we hope. Uh, and I'd stop at the tavern out in the country where my dad was drinking. And I'd sit on the bar stool next to him and drink a Coke. And scratch his old burr head. And just love on him. Tell him I loved him. And he'd just rail at me. Ah, You remember when you brought those house papers from your mother for me to sign? No, Dad, but get it on out there. (laughs) You know. And uh, I knew the joy. There's a lot of joy in loving my father. And when my father died, I buried a loved one, not a lovable one. And I learned that in here. Because the first time I've ever truly fallen in love, I fell in love with the first guy I sponsored. This was the first time I ever did for someone expecting nothing in return. I wasn't going to get nothing. This guy had nothing to give me. I was only seven months sober when he asked me to sponsor him. I told him I didn't have enough time, but I kind of flattered that he'd asked. So I told my sponsor, and he says, well, what'd you tell him? I said, no, I don't have enough time. He says, how much, what steps he on? I said, I said, well, he's on one, I guess. And he says, what step are you on? I said, well, you know, I'm on eight. And he says, well, why don't you go help him with one through seven? And, you know, you heard the expression, you have to give it away to keep it. 
I had to try to give it away to get it. <laughs> because I would do for him what I wouldn't do for myself. You know, and I wouldn't miss a meeting because I wanted to be a good example for him. And I'd read in that book when I wouldn't read for myself because I wanted to know what to say to him. And, uh, you know, even though that guy had a, had a young guy who'd only been sober a little while for a sponsor, he's sober today. He's sober today. You don't have to be a whiz to be a sponsor. You just have to be further along in the steps than they are. <laughs> you know? And you have to be willing to continue. Uh, I've worked these 12 steps. I've taken these 12 steps. I've had a spiritual awakening. That's the desired result. All along the way, I've learned truths about myself. The fourth step was a, was a complete epiphany for me. I always thought that I was a victim. And I know now that I am the root of all my problems is self. Selfish, self-centered. That's the root of my problem. You know, I'm involved. Anytime I'm disturbed, I got a role to play in it. And I, that was such an, I couldn't believe it. And I did a fears list and I told my sponsor, and I meant it, 38 years old, I'm not afraid of nothing. I'm decorated for heroism and combat. I'm not, I've never lost a fight, I'll whip your ass. I'm not afraid of nothing. He says, well, write down something. Spiders. Snakes. <laughs> Being alone. The dark. Not having enough money. Boy, the magic pencil just goes—I'm afraid of everything, and that was news to me. You know, it's amazing. I was a sexual deviant. I found out. Oh God! And I also set up some guidelines for my future conduct, of which I've been able to live by. You know, I, one of the reasons I didn't like myself is because of things I did. And I never—I was just a loose cannon on deck. You know, I didn't make decisions. I just did. I didn't react. I, I just acted out. Uh, Man, I don't know what the heck I've been talking about. But uh, I, I, I'm going to close here. Hopefully, how much time I got to tell you to get done? I didn't take my timer out. Uh, I'm seven years sober, and uh, my daughter's living with me. I'm married. Married the gal I was dating when I went to treatment. She came as my significant other, and because none of my family came, and so I could participate in family week. And uh, I'd like to say that today we're married 21 years. And uh, I still like her, and she still likes me, and we live in a world that I didn't know existed, you know, and life is good. And we have five grandkids, and we're close with all our kids. All my relationships have been restored, every one of them. And the long version of the serenity prayer says he'll he'll make everything right if we just completely give ourselves to him. And everything has been made right in my life. Everything from my brother's suicide to the childhood abuse to the chaos of war to my disability, everything has been made right. This is how God works in my life. Uh, I'm at the races on Friday night. I'm a race nut. That's where I go on Friday night. I'm a race fanatic. And so it's a beautiful night, and the car counts good, and the track's fast, and we're having a good time at the races. And something, urge and urge comes over me, and I have to go home. I don't know why. I just have to go home. Make of it what you will. But I left the grandstand that night feeling sad. Where is my passion for racing? Why am I going home? I did not know. I walked into the house and my wife says, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know. I think I just soon watch TV tonight. Whatever. I sit down, I turned on the TV, 9 o'clock Friday night, 2020 was coming on. Back then they used to do several little vignettes in, a, in an evening, two or three little shorts. And the first vignette came on. Just as I turned the TV on, there's a helicopter flying over the jungles of Vietnam. And the story's called The Gift of Life. 
And a fellow writing a book on emergency room trauma is interviewing trauma specialists. And he's talking to one of the top trauma doctors in the nation, a Dr. Kenneth Swan. And he asked Dr. Swan, what was the worst trauma case you ever treated? And Dr. Swan began to recount when he was a young surgeon back at the 71st Medevac in Pleiku, Vietnam in 1968. And they brought in a soldier who was so gravely wounded that the consensus was to medicate him, set him aside, declare him expectant, and let him die. His legs are blown off. He's got shrapnel the size of your thumb in the middle of his brain. He has no eyes. Both of his eyes are gone. His, his arms are severely mangled. The consensus of the staff is to let him, let him go. And Dr. Swan went against the consensus, operated on this kid, and saved his life. Of course, the author asks, how did he turn out? Did you save him for a life that means something, or did you save him for a life of horror? And Dr. Swan didn't know. He'd never even thought of that kid again. He was just part of the process, just processing the meat through there and those mashes. And, uh... So anyway, they, they set about to find him, and it took two years. And he's a fellow named Ken McGarrity, and he lives in Columbus, Georgia. And they start to tell his story, and he's a young door gunner, crew chief, trying to drop firefighting equipment and explosives to infantrymen trapped in a burning jungle. On September 21st, 1968. And I sat on that sofa and I just started to shake. I just started to tremble and shake. Because this is my kid. I just know this is my kid. My wife came over. She says, what's wrong? I said, this is my kid. This is my story. This is my nightmare they're talking about here. And she sat down and she held on to me. And I just shook. And it was. This is indeed the kid that Henderson and I went out and got that day. The kid that I have nightmares about every night. And since Vietnam, he has married fathered two children. The guy has no legs, not even stumps. He sits on his tailbone. He's like Humpty Dumpty. They put one of his arms back together backwards. One goes behind him, one goes in front. So he sits on his tailbone with his arms in front and back to keep himself balanced. He can feel with two fingers sometimes because he's burned them so badly over the years. He has no eyes in his head. He scuba dives. He sails. He's a hell of a guy. But he suffers horribly from post-traumatic stress. And he, he's one of these guys that can't get home from Vietnam. And he says the thing that bothers him, they're interviewing him, the thing that bothers him most is he doesn't know what happened to him. I was looking right at him. So I reached out. He had an unlisted number. I called Dr. Swan. Dr. Swan returned my call. I said, would you give Kenny my number? He said, no, but I'll... Uh, he said, yeah, I'll give Kenny your number, but I don't know if he'll call. And so I, he called, and he asked me a bunch of questions I couldn't answer. Uh, like, he says, I had a special helmet. What did my helmet look like? I said, I don't know. You didn't have much of a head, much less a helmet, you know. But I said, I was decorated that day by the commander of your helicopter. And he said, well, what was that man's name? And I, I didn't know right offhand. But uh, when I did my four-step, I went and looked through some of that old stuff, and uh, I had found, uh, I couldn't find that piece of paper, but it, while I had Kenny on the phone, I was able to go and pick up that piece of paper, right, right on top of a box, stuck, stuck to another one, and I pulled it out, I said, that's Commander Colonel John Yarbrough, he says, that was my commander, and so this is the kid, you know, from 28 years before, that I've been having nightmares about ever since, and we start talking on the phone, and I'm trying to help him get home from Vietnam. And he's dragging me back into the jungles. I'm mad as hell. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to do that. But you know what? He hears this program. 
He hears our program. This is a way of life for me now. And he hears it coming out. And I'm just trying to be helpful. I'm trying to help him get home. And because I'm running out of time, long story short, Kenny gets sober. Can you imagine that? Kenny got sober. God used me to help him twice. You know? I spoke at the Georgia State Convention a few years ago, and he was in the audience in a wheelchair. Uh, and I got to this part, and I said, Kenny, how long have you been sober now? And he says, oh, wow, the audience comes, oh, about 10 years. And I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. He's amazing, an absolutely amazing man. But horrible alcoholic, violent, abusive. And uh, he was so wonderful to get sober. You know, he forgave his father. He was reunited with his kids. It's just an incredible story. And he, uh, he died two years ago. And it's one of the, that was harder than losing my parents. Anyway, uh, what I, the healing I got from that was HBO wanted to make a movie about his life. <laughs> Nobody called me. <laughs> I'm pissed. <laughs> he calls me. He wants me to send him some memorabilia and stuff for his movie, his book. And I put it in a box and I sent it off and I put a cover letter in it. And in the cover letter I wrote, Kenny, I've got a resentment. You know, in all the years we've talked, you have never once told me thank you for saving your life. Got it out there, boy, because it was bothering me. It was bothering me. Showed it to my wife. She proofreads my stuff because I'm not real bright. She says, this, you never said thank you. That doesn't belong in there. I said, oh, yes, it does. It's the truth. I live in the truth today. I'm an honest man. <laughs> she says, in there comes some spiritual axiom or something about if there's a bug up your ass, it's your bug or something like that. You know, <laughs> something bugs you, it's your, you're doing it or something like that. And I just... Yeah, so I went back to my little word processor. Didn't have a computer. Went back to my little word processor to edit it out. I didn't want to rewrite the whole letter. I just wanted to edit it. So that I could mail it off, you know, so that it would make some kind of sense. And so what came out was God's gift for me. What came out was God's healing for me. Because what came out was, Kenny, I've never said thank you. Whoa. For all those years, I'd only seen myself running into a burning jungle to get Kenny. Truth, another truth, another perspective. Kenny's safe in a helicopter. I'm trapped in a burning jungle. He flies into harm's way for me. When that rocket hit that helicopter, he gave his legs and he gave his sight. and He entered into that darkness and that disability for me. No one had ever said, Kenny, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your sacrifice. Selfish, self-centered, that is the root of my problem. I suffer from a bias in my perspective. I see things that enhance and enrich me. I see the world as I want it to be. You know, I have the talk with my daughter, and she assures me that she doesn't need birth control. I abused myself horribly. No wonder I couldn't heal. You know, somebody with my disability shouldn't be doing the things I'm doing. You know, I need to pay somebody to mow my lawn instead of mowing it myself. I need to park in a handicapped slot so I don't walk very far. I need to use a cane instead of being John Wayne. You know, I have to stop after 12 holes of golf if I can't finish, if it hurts. You know, it, it says I hurt because it's saying stop doing what you're doing. And I would medicate it and keep doing what I was doing and I never healed. And Ten years sober, I was ten years without affection and a real courageous doctor 
took me on and he didn't do a hip replacement. He did a complete reconstruction and it didn't work. I got infected and I lost it. And I spent my 11th year of sobriety in a hospital bed again, just wondering why me? You know, what do I have to do to catch a break? But after I fought that infection off again, they tried again and it slipped right in there. And I'm here to tell you today, I live pain free. That, that hip don't cause me any pain at all. It doesn't cause me any pain at all. I can do things I never dreamed I could do. I can sit on a toilet. I couldn't do that. For 28 years, I was stiff, straight up and down. You know, it was pretty much bombs away for me. You know? And the, the, my sphincter is not straight. You know, it's, just, it's not in there between two little cushions. You know, it's kind of cockeyed, and you don't know where things are going to go. Especially if it's loose. Loose stool. But man, I can sit down on a stool now. Put my elbows on my knees. God, it's good. Ugh. Just squeeze one off. <laughs> Don't have to worry about where it's going or nothing. God, I love it. Next time you're taking the dump, I want you to think about me, okay? And just, just what it would be like if you could, you know, if you had the bombs away all the time. Anyway, uh, it's amazing. I rode a Harley Davidson motorcycle. I just started riding 18 months ago. And in May, I rode that motorcycle 6,200 miles from Dallas to California to Washington, D.C., and back to Dallas with some vets that I met in recovery through these meetings who had taken me, wanted to take me to the wall. And for Memorial Day this year, I went to the wall. And I went through all the memorials across the country. And we escorted the KIAs from Iraq home. And we dealt with a whole bunch of that stuff that I hadn't dealt with yet. It's just the guys in here loving me. One guy went on that ride with us for no reason other than to escort me because I, my left leg's still real weak. This motorcycle weighs 800 pounds. I drop it all the time. It's a real pretty bike except for the scratches. <laughs> And he's there to pick it up off of me every time I drop it. And that's the only reason he went. That's the kind of people I meet in AA. You know. I live in a world today that I didn't know existed. I'm happier, healthier, more whole in every aspect of my life. Uh, my daughter and I are tight. My exes and I are tight. My mom, every, you know, everybody's gone except my youngest brother now, but I have good relations with everyone, and uh, I've never been happier. I rode my bike into the garage a few days ago, and it was a beautiful day, and my wife came, she heard me come in, and she opened the kitchen door and came out into the garage, and, and I looked her right in the eye, and I told her, I said, I have never been happier. I've never enjoyed my life more than I'm enjoying it right now, you know, and uh Man, you can't get there from where we've been. And I want to thank you all for letting me come and share some of my story with you and tell you that uh, God is in his heaven and all is right on earth. And that God loves you because he's God, not because of anything you've done or didn't do. And that we're all the perfect product of all our life experiences, real or imagined. You're fine. We're all perfect. We're just as we should be. Get in harmony with that reality. And you will come to know great truths. Thanks for letting me share.